welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. With this episode, we're starting a close look at how flavor works, how that interacts with diet and nutrition, and what to do when something goes awry with our flavor perception. And what better place to start than with a food writer? I'm Rowan Jacobson. I'm a longtime food and nature writer, and I've written eight books and more magazine articles than I can count about various aspects of food and nutrition and sensory experience. Might you have recently written a book that ties into smell? I just wrote a book about truffles, and uh, truffles are a food that is all about smell. They're, they don't really taste like anything. Their whole deal is smell. So there's no food more smell-oriented than a truffle. Would an oyster be competing at any level for the smell-oriented? I wrote a book about oysters, too. Two books, in fact. Two and a half. He's written a lot of food books and won awards. He's also a science writer. Oysters do have really interesting smells. They have these great coastal sea smells. They actually produce a lot of the same aromatic compounds that like ocean water breaking on the beach produces, which is partly why people love them. But also with oysters, a lot of it is taste, not smell. So the saltiness, especially, but also the, the umami, things that are about your taste buds rather than your smell receptors. So here at the introduction, we're already getting into the substance of things. Two key elements of how we experience flavor are smell and taste. So flavor is really the combination of taste and smell. Taste are the the sensations that we experience via the tongue, and they're very, very specific things. There's really only five that we know of, although there may well be more that we haven't found yet. But the big five are sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, uh, which is like a savory taste. And that's it's just like when... A food has one of those things in it, sugar, salt, bitter compounds, acids. Certain taste buds light up and send that message to the brain. And taste is just, that's it. That's all there is with taste. The rest of the experience is smell, which is way more complex because there are tens of thousands of different aromatic molecules that each will trigger an independent recognition in the brain. So strawberry, banana whatever, that's all separate from taste. And so we, we tend to focus on taste more because it's kind of, it's maybe more obvious. But what makes foods interesting and just the rest of life interesting is, is smell, not, not taste so much. Smell and taste aren't the only senses defining our experience of flavor. There's also texture, sound, visual input, and probably the most influential of all, the context that our brains add to the signals we get from our food. Familiarity is a big deal in the context department. Would you believe me if I said a well-prepared silkworm grub tastes like a better version of a french fry? Possibly not. But it's true. It's just hard for our brains to get over the context gap. Grubs, yes, I've had um, fried grubs. They pop beautifully. And they have fat. They are very much like a junk food. Getting back to smell and taste. While it's true that smell gets a lot of attention... I'm not so convinced that that's where the excitement is. I mean, of course, Rowan would say that. He just wrote a book about truffles. He's biased. Part of the issue here is that flat, unsubtle tastes are a new phenomena. For example, here's Michael Pollan writing about sweetness in his book, The Botany of Desire. 
except it's not actually Michael Pollan. It's my husband, who is the stand-in voiceover actor for this episode. Before the 19th century, the sensation of sweetness in the lives of most people came chiefly from the flesh of fruit, and in America, that usually meant the apple. Sweetness is a desire that starts on the tongue with the sense of taste, but it doesn't end there, or at least it didn't end there, back when the experience of sweetness was so special that the word served as a metaphor for a certain kind of perfection. The best land was said to be sweet. So were the most pleasing sounds, the most persuasive talk, the loveliest views, the most refined people, the choicest part of any whole, as when Shakespeare calls spring sweet of the year. Lent by the tongue to all the other sense organs, sweet, in the somewhat archaic definition of the Oxford English Dictionary, is that which affords enjoyment or gratifies desire. Like a shimmering equal sign, the word sweetness denoted a reality commensurate with human desire. It stood for fulfillment. Since then, sweetness has lost much of its power and become slightly, well, saccharine. Who now would think of sweetness as a noble quality? Today, we're much more acclimated to a baseline of manufactured tastes, where depth gets layered purposely on through other senses. And given this reality, my money's on texture and taste for where the excitement is found. What's ice cream? Smooth, cold, and sweet. Potato chips? Salty and crispy. Craft beer? Bitter and bubbly. Yeah, sure, we'll talk about aroma-based complexity of flavor, but that's not what hits us first. And after a few sips or bites, unless you're a trained professional, that complexity fades fast and you're back to the basics again. You could also make a case for the visual. Try eating a bag of Skittles with your eyes closed. Can you really tell what flavor each one is without seeing the color? No, they taste like sweet and a bit of sour. When candy makers attempt to recreate actual flavors, the kinds found outside the candy aisle, bad things happen. Consider this online review of Thanksgiving dinner candy corn, posted by Mom of No Rank and edited by me, because this is a safe-for-work podcast. There's a special place in, you can guess where, for whoever decided to make three of the flavors so similar in color. Top left is turkey and gravy. It is disturbingly, hauntingly like candied turkey. Top middle is stuffing, which tastes like hate and sage. So much sage. It's ironic because you'll need to burn sage to erase it from your psyche. Top right is caramel apple pie. It's fine. Most prominent flavor is caramel, with a surprisingly natural cinnamon background, and then a crisp finish with just a faint whisper of Oda artificial flavoring that once spent 15 minutes in a room with an apple pie-scented Yankee candle, with the lid closed. Can we all agree that it's often better to let color and not aroma define our candy flavors? Now back to Rowan, using a very botany of desire-like argument to explain the power of aroma when properly applied in nature. And a truffle is basically, it's kind of like an underground mushroom that never comes to the surface and never opens its parasol. So it's a ball of spores that stays underground, and it's the, the basically the fruit of a fungus that lives underground with the tree. The fungus wants that truffle, which is full of spores, to be spread through the forest so it can make more fungus, but it's underground, so wind's not going to spread those spores. So how is it going to do it? it's decided to use animals to do the job for it. So basically, the way it does that is by smelling 
completely irresistible so that, and intense so that any like squirrel passing through the forest will pick up on the scent of the truffle and be um, consumed with a need to dig it up, eat it, and then spread the spores later through the forest. So basically a truffle is like a 10 million year focus group to design the perfect smell to drive animals wild. And it works on the intended targets for the truffle, but also a bunch of un- unintended targets like us. So you say that it works on us. I am not currently a dog owner, but I've had dogs in my past, and I've noticed that the irresistible smell to them is not the same as what's an irresistible smell to me. <laughs> That's true. We don't agree on everything. And there are lots of truffle species out there that do not smell good to people. What turns on the uh, the red-backed vole does not necessarily turn on the typical human, apparently. But there are a small subset of truffles whose uh, scent like works crazily well for people. And you can see it's very drug-like. People lose their minds for truffles and pay insane amounts of money for them. Here's another aspect of smell. It goes straight to our memory centers. It's all variations on Proust's Madeleine, the famous cookie moment that led to a very long remembrance of things past, built from texture and aroma, of a cookie dipped in tea. Once I had recognized the taste of the crumb of Madeleine soaked in her decoction of lime flowers which my aunt used to give me, immediately the old gray house upon the street where her room was rose up like the scenery of a theater. The aromatic steam rising from a hot cup of tea, the curtain rising on the scene of a play, that's not just an early 20th century writer being writerly. Our brains are wired to describe sense in relation to our memories. It can be really hard to describe a food. The thing about smell is, unlike our other senses, it doesn't sort of go to the higher brain for sort of conscious processing first it bypasses the whole linguistic center of the brain and just goes straight to the limbic system, uh, which is where like memory and emotion are housed. So that's, that's why it's often incredibly hard to put a word to a, a scent. It's because it's not going through the language processing part of the brain at all. And that's also why there's that immediacy to a scent and, and memory is so tied to sense. Some professions do require a common language around scent. For them, there's a solution. You can build a vocabulary by learning reference point scents. They come in vials, you can buy them online. And then describing complex aromas in relation to those references. That's what wine professionals are doing when they say hints of blackberry or fig. It's not necessarily true that the wine reminds them of blackberries they personally have eaten. They've calibrated to the scent that other wine professionals agree to call blackberry and can link aromas they catch in a new wine back to that learned, shared vocabulary. We'll get into this in future episodes. Another option would be to just embrace the abstraction and observe all the associations that your brain conjures each time it encounters a new aroma. Like, you can have a smell diet that has nothing to do with food. You're taking in perceptions. I've started, like, watching truffle dogs work, watching dogs like sort of like sample smells in the forest i've started to think that it's almost like abstract art the truffle underground is producing these insane aromatics and sending them out a little like tendrils of aroma through the forest and it's almost like a street artist just like graffiti right it's like putting up a message in the forest through scent and when you see dogs 
anywhere, like on a walk or in the woods or whatever, then they're, they're sampling widely. And like, we always think they're doing it for very practical reasons. Like, oh, they're trying to jack an animal or whatever. I think they're just taking it in. It's as if they are admiring the new gallery of these abstract works of art that are just like splashes of scent in, in new patterns. And watching them work, I, I've sort of tried to like get better at that myself to sort of be the, the abstract art appreciator of uh, these scents that a forest is putting out or that a food is putting out. At the end of the day, we arrive at a complex web of experiences and memories. When something disrupts these connections, it disrupts our relationship to our food, and that can cause a lot of anxiety. This prospect has been in the news with COVID-19. For patients with lingering post-COVID symptoms, loss of smell is the second most commonly reported one, after fatigue. But the truth is, lost or changed smell happens all the time. The cause might be a head injury, cancer, pollution, long-term effects of smoking, heck, long-term effects of being alive. Simply getting older will change our sense of smell and our perception of food. There's another thing going on here as well, which is what I think of as the true omnivore's dilemma. And that's familiarity. It's a dilemma. On the one hand, back in evolutionary time, Humans who were overly adventurous with new flavor experiences got themselves poisoned, so it was good to be biased towards familiar foods. On the other hand, having a broad range of foods we can eat and an adaptable palate allows humans to find food in almost any ecosystem. You really don't want to be a koala. It's a fast route to endangered species status. The result for us is that we respond strongly to what's familiar, but also it doesn't take very long for a new food to become familiar. In situations where we don't need to explore new foods, that dynamic tension around familiarity can devolve into something more stagnant and often unhealthy. Paying more attention to the elements of the foods we enjoy and expanding our range of enjoyable foods sets the foundation for being flexible if a health condition requires any sort of change in our diets. Whether it's something as dramatic as loss of smell, or as mundane as needing to eat more dark leafy greens. Losing a sense of smell means you aren't just going to be on autopilot. You're going to be aware of what's going on and what you're experiencing in a way that most of us are not. So it seems like a really interesting opportunity to rediscover your relationship with smell and to get a much more conscious sense of what you like, what you don't, and why. Things that most of us are just sort of taking for granted and... and not paying attention to and, and we all should probably start paying more attention if you're really like following second by second your response to a new food or a new smell it's different than you think it is like it's um, a mix of positive and negative and kind of all over the place and there's more emotion or like micro emotional moments i sometimes think that smells should not be described with the, na the wine writer nouns but should only be described in terms of feelings because Basically, smells are all eliciting feelings or little tiny building blocks of feelings instantly before the higher brain knows what's going on. So the right way to describe a truffle or a strawberry is um, probably just in terms of feelings, like strings of feelings or just sensations, rather than saying, hmm, this beetle smells a little bit like rose hips to me. Rowan did not have the benefit of all the other interviews for this season when he gave his answer, but basically, yes, 
His perspective here is what a lot of people recommend. Paying attention to our food experiences as a regular practice, breaking them into particular sensations and emotions, and applying that type of curiosity to any changes in our sensory relationship with food. An important caveat is that we're talking about broad adjustments over time, not an acute scenario like managing a nutritious diet through cancer treatment, a situation that we'll mention briefly in the next episode. Speaking of the next episode, we'll be inching perilously close to the wine nouns Rowan just elected to ignore. Entering the world of the sensory professional, the people who help an average of 20,000 new food products reach our grocery shelves each year, they know something about exploring new flavors. So be sure to tune in for the next episode of the Policy in Plainer English podcast. Maybe I don't need to encourage listeners to go out and cook random bugs from the garden. We did Google first what the likelihood was of Japanese beetles being poisonous. <laughs> I think you're good with almost any bugs. Stay away from the spiders, probably. This season of Policy in Plainer English is supported by a grant from HRSA and the Northern Border Regional Commission. Find out more in our show notes at plainerenglish.org.